0: Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee.
1: Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today as always are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camelot. Oops. Renee lied, he's actually not here, and neither is Dustin for this episode. I'm Timothy Muirhead and I'm riding solo on this one. Even without Dustin and Renee, though, I think we have a cool episode lined up for you. We have two guests, starting with Gordon Hempton, the world-renowned nature recordist and author, and following that with an interview with Dr. Marshall Chasen. He's the director and chief audiologist at the Musician's Clinic of Canada. Marshall will tell us all about the best ways to keep our ears healthy and working in peak form, how long we can safely expose ourselves to high volumes, and other things that anyone who makes a living using their ears should know and adhere to. But first up, we have a nice long talk with Gordon Hempton. There's a lot of info available out on the web on Gordon and his one-square-inch project, and he has started to become known more for his environmental-conservational work than his recordings but it is his pristine recordings of the most remote areas of our planet that originally brought his work to the attention of the public. Now many of those recordings are becoming available to purchase and add to your own sound effects library for the first time through his new company, Quiet Planet. You should head over to quietplanet.com ASAP and explore both the libraries and his blog. The blog features a bunch of articles that Gordon wrote on how to best sound design with the sounds of nature. Gordon is a captivating and an engaging speaker and we are running out of time before I was able to cover half the topics I was hoping to discuss with him. There's also been a feature-length documentary on Mr. Hempton called The Soundtracker and we are going to start the interview with a clip from the film in which Gordon tells the story of when he first decided listening and recording nature was his calling.
2: It was 1980 and I was on my way back to the University of Wisconsin where I was studying botany. I had been driving all day and I was so tired I pulled over into a field. I lay there and a thunderstorm passed over. The front moved through with a breeze. And I could hear the chanting chorus of crickets and the thunder all around me. I'd spent all my academic career studying plants, collecting in the field, been through so many experiences outdoors, but that was the first time that I had actually listened to a thunderstorm. And I said, what's the matter with me that I could be 27 years old before I start to listen? And so from that moment forward, I decided to follow my heart. Hello, this must be Timothy. Oh, hey, Gordon. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great.
1: You've told the story many times about, about listening to the real world the first time in that field. But I was wondering how you came to envision the career path where you found such a unique meeting place between the worlds of sound, science, and art. Like, did you, did you foresee your career path, or have you kind of uh, found it as you went?
2: Uh, you know, of course, my plans were to become a plant pathologist, and I was uh, going to Madison, uh, Wisconsin. I had all this momentum and uh, paint-by-numbers life but i went to school with this memory of what it meant to have what i now call an original experience an experience that's unedited that's not changed in the studio that doesn't conform to somebody else's message but i sincerely believe that if i could become a better listener that i could hear messages uh, that were coming to me just as they come to my ancestors and when something that important begins to eat at you well it becomes a crime of passion I I dropped out of graduate school I I couldn't become a plant pathologist anymore there wasn't a career as an acoustic ecologist so I wound up being a bike messenger as my day job and just taking life as it came Um, and that day job as a bike messenger, went on for nine years. Wow. A long time. Yeah. But I learned a lot. Um, There were some unexpected surprises. Uh, For one thing, I thought to become a better listener would involve a microphone and being out in nature or hopping freight and recording trains, which I still love very much today. Or recording uh, interviews of people just having casual conversations. I just used a microphone as a, you know the ears that really would listen rather than filter the world out, and that was great. But the being a bike messenger had another huge dividend, and that is um, because I rode in busy hilly downtown Seattle. You get hit by cars. That just comes with the territory. And the only way you're going to be able to survive is to listen. And so every time I was hit by a car, um, and sometimes, you know, I mean, it's always painful, always shocking, always traumatic. Uh, I found myself a little bit further towards that point of not being able to filter out at all. I had to listen to Survive. And so it put me on the, the, and by accident, it just put me on the equivalent of being wildlife. And so I've really learned a lot from wildlife too.
1: So what I like about your recording philosophy is like you're not just going out mm-hmm. and recording what's there. You, you talk a lot about finding the perfect Spot within the environment to record, and you sure. also call your right. your recordings mm-hmm. sound portraits, which implies yes. a, an artistic intent. Obviously, with just by simply using the word portrait, so you found this really great uh, meaning mm-hmm. meaning point between sound and art. And I was just wondering, like, uh, how do you try and do that every time, or is that something that you only? Yes,
2: y- y- yes. Um, basically. I am well known for being a field recordist, but my work is really being a listener. That's who I think of myself as a listener, um, actually trying to become a better listener. Uh, whatever I record, I accomplish on location and I don't accomplish in the studio. The studio is just deciding, you know, the start and the end points and when I compose a photograph in the same uh, philosophy as uh, traditional landscape photographers, I want to find the right location and then wait for the right conditions. And that can you know, go on for six weeks. I think the longest that I waited for the right conditions was six weeks at the for the Northern Spotted Owl. And that's a whole story in itself. But my my point is, is that I don't want to deliver to my audience um, the idea that, oh, Gordon Hampton is a master mixer, a great artist in the studio. My message is that the earth is beautiful, sonically beautiful and it is sending us real messages that are vital to our lives today, and all we have to do is listen. So if people like my recordings, they and my recordings are not as good as the live concert, then they love Planet Earth. And that completes the loop, which is my sound portraits are essentially invitations for all of us to start listening to the planet, to clean up the noise pollution, And, um, you know, it's when you're indoors and, and, um, you know, inside this isolation chamber that we've built one of many, whether it's the home or the office, and we don't hear the birds or the wind or the changing tide and how dynamic being alive this day is, then we, you know, we're, we're like homeless. And that's the way that I've really looked at modern people today as a homeless culture that is bouncing around, being misled by advertising, being distracted with all these electronics and all these television and movies and stuff which have no message except to hold your attention so they can sell advertising. And that's why this conversation that we're having today The fact that you don't sell advertising, that you don't make a profit, and you're volunteering is really wonderful. I appreciate this, Timothy.
1: (laughs) No problem. Uh, I... The way you talk about listening, I think uh, for those who haven't had a chance to see it there's a film called The Soundtracker a documentary that uh, yeah. follows you around yeah. a bit. <laughs> and there's a great scene in it where uh, it shows uh. your joy in listening because you, you capture a train passing and then the camera just holds on <laughs> you as you listen to the playback.
2: I'm just now proofing it listening to the playback Oh Yeah <laughs> ah.
0: <laughs>
2: oh yeah. Ah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, I really needed that. It, it, uh, it sounds great. Yeah, that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted. And now, you know, I just have to admit it. I'm, like, insatiable. (laughs) Now I'm even feeling a little greedy. Like I just needed, uh, you know, a little variation on perfection.
1: And then there's another scene where a train passes as well. And you're rocking out to the train yeah. passing the way, like, 17-year-olds oh, do at a Metallica oh, yeah. concert. Uh, <laughs> and it's just great to oh, see yeah. the yeah. Sometimes joy. I...
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, my, my expertise is really recording um, pristine wilderness places. But I'm human. I know what I like. And sometimes, you know, I just need it loud and rolling <laughs> and screeching and powerful and real... And, ah, you know, that, if you haven't had that in a while, that's also (laughs) a really valuable experience. But I have to tell you a funny story about Soundtracker. Okay. Is that that, uh, the producer, Nick Sherman, calls me up one day and he says he's down in L.A. and he's doing this and doing that and would like to produce a movie about my work and so I thought, oh, yeah, sure, right. Well, if he's really serious, he's going to have to come up and continue this phone call in person. So he did. And I was really impressed. I felt like his heart was really in the right place, that he would deliver whatever messages I could translate from the earth to the audience watching the movie. And then, and he had total artistic control over this. We worked on this for basically two and a half years on and off as I went into the field and recorded. A uh, big investment on his part, shoestring budget, all of that. And the first time I saw this movie was at the Sedona Film Festival. Okay, I'm sitting in the audience and there'll be a QA and a afterwards. Like five minutes into the movie, I'm thinking, oh my God this guy is crazy. <laughs> and, of co- and of course it's me. And, and the blessing of that was, okay, now everybody knows I'm crazy. So I guess I don't even have to hold back anymore. So it, it was a real blessing. And, and I've been a lot more comfortable in interviews and, and uh, the television spots that I've had and, and stuff like this. It, it's been great. Yeah, overall, it's been great.
1: Yeah, it's a remarkable documentary. It really, it. what I like about it is it takes its time. It's not rushing through anything. It's uh, letting things happen. Oh, thank you. Yeah.
2: The most difficult part of that movie, and actually I was surprised that some of the critics attacked it as uh, odd. But the, the most heart-wrenching part of that movie is when we went to a big uh, cedar tree that had been preserved during the clear-cut logging here on the olympic peninsula and we take this long drive down a logging road until we finally arrive at this solitary tree that's an ancient monument that precedes the birth of this country okay and it's been set aside and it looks so lonely and you can only imagine what a beautiful cathedral it grew in. And we see the stumps all around of the other trees that were slightly smaller that were cut and taken to the market. And, I, and it, was, it was really uh, heart-wrenching for me to think how we turn our cathedrals into toothpicks and boards and trim to decorate our homes when really... Those kinds of natural places, if, if we could be there in person and listen to them fully before we cut them, we could never cut them. We can never achieve those kinds of structures, even the best of our architects and the hardest of our work. These are the original cathedrals and so many of them are, are gone and only a few are left uh, here in this part of the world it's the whole Valley, and we can talk about One Square inch. It's the cathedral that I'm trying to save.
1: For sure. I also like that you're putting your money where your mouth is with your new library of ambiences, oh. this, the Quiet Planet, that you give the, mm-hmm. the artist royalty. Do you want to explain that?
2: Right, right, sure. Well, Quiet Planet is a new project. We just started on Earth Day in 2013, and this is where I have taken my recordings of the last great quiet places on earth that are relatively unpolluted by noise. and the the quality of the recordings are outstanding because the quality of the locations are outstanding. And I'm making these available to all kinds of producers, uh, individuals only at the moment, not businesses. I and mean, that's a whole philosophy in itself. I want to empower, sound designers to get control of their own job rather than being laid off. But The Quiet Planet uh, donates 10% of its proceeds, which is pretty significant. That's not profit. That's just 10% of the cost of any product uh, gets funneled back into nonprofit environmental organizations that work towards the preservation these last quiet places so it comes around I'm hoping that we can prove that there is real economic value as well as cultural value because these sounds are going to find their way into uh, music albums they're going to find their way into radio broadcasts bird note uses quite a few of them on NPR and into movies and and because they're so musical You know, the nature ambience sounds qualitatively different in these pristine places. The concert or the performers and everything is still intact. And so I think most people immediately intuitively uh, recognize this as music, the kind of stuff that you could dance to or hum all day. And I'm hoping that on those nature documentaries where it's like nonstop music, except for a few nature sound effects, that Quiet Planet's ambiences will make their way in there and, and really change how people expect to have an experience when they visit our national parks.
1: Well, that's really great. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to get you to expand a bit more on your policy of only selling to individuals. Do you want to talk about that a bit?
2: Traditionally, I think, you know, in the projects that I've worked on, I've, I've worked on a lot of game audio and projects, big ones, and done field recording as well as worked with established libraries. And traditionally, the employer, the business, buys a multi-user license and then whoever's working for them at the time, uh, they're able to use these sounds to apply to the product. Well, uh, recently, particularly with the downturn of the economy, what's happened is that people that used to have sound designers that used to have a very secure job They get laid off and they become part-time contractors that means no benefits that they're cheaper to use and they have less power and if they don't like it well there are plenty of other sound designers to take their place I'm tired of that these these are my friends right that I've seen struggle that are tremendously talented and I'm at a point here where I'm delivering six terabytes of my library Uh, It's a major worldwide coverage of some high-quality sounds. And I'm in a position of a little bit of power and influence where if I only license to individuals instead of businesses, and those individuals, when they buy a Quiet Planet product, they get a life-term license, and and it's royalty-free. And they can apply it to any project that meets our license and it's really quite a liberal license so if they get canned if they get light laid off they walk with these sounds that i know the employer is going to want in their products and plus it goes beyond that it goes to the point where sound design is really a profession that requires not just skill but talent and there's a tremendous amount of talent but what happens often the sound designer isn't even asked how this should happen they're told how it should happen but they're the person in the know and I'd like to see them elevated at least to uh, visual designers and and producers of the proj- project I believe that sound drives That sound really drives all the experience whether it's film or whether it's television television is just animated radio right and if you turn off the sound the whole thing it just seems fake you turn on the sound and it comes alive and yet but you get into the production what happens you know when a client calls me because they need sounds Well, it's not because they're planning ahead. It's because they didn't even think of it until the last moment. And all of that needs to change. (laughs) I know (laughs) I'm being long-winded here. No, no, it's um, great. Because I I really have a lot of energy about this. But now here's the second half of the equation. is okay. You know, these sound designers that are overworking and underpaid without benefits, they don't really get the chance to go out to nature like I do. And so many times they're left to their own lucky and sometimes unlucky guesses on how this should sound. And so, with each Quiet Planet collection, such as Winds or Rain and Thunder, and we have uh, 20 in all that we'll have published here soon, there is a how um, basically sound designing with winds, so you can read. How important winds are, and controlling the bioacoustic information in a system. Also, how winds cycle through the day, cycle through the seasons. How different plants sound differently. Like the the longer the needle on needle leaves, the lower the pitch. All this kind of stuff is covered. And then there's a, another article which is how to record winds, so you can expand your own library and get the jump start on um, your time out in the field and not spending years learning these tricks, which I've learned over a time period of 30 years.
1: Yeah, those documents, they can actually be found on your website, right? The Quiet Planet website?
2: Yes. Uh, right now they are. We have a blog there. Uh, it, we, we put the articles on the blog uh, when we don't have the sound of the week up there. Okay. Okay. But they're, they're fantastic
1: because I think what uh, you're saying overall in terms of freelance sound designers is that what they have is their own expertise and their library. And if you can take the library out of the hands of the owners of the studios, then that empowers them more. So
2: you're, exactly.
1: you're helping them in two ways. You're selling them awesome sounds for their library, and you're also teaching them how to get their own sounds to build their own library to make them even more powerful in the equation. Exactly,
2: right. And the sound designer is not only more powerful, but the fact that the sound designer owns the license, they're associated with these sounds. And so I think psychologically the business, the producers are are going to recognize that this is a tool on their tool belt. They're the ones that use it. They're the ones that are experts on it. So instead of telling them we want it to sound like this or this, I think the knowledge and the resources, the assets that the sound designer acquires through Quiet Planet is really going to elevate their profession and uh, elevate how much they're worth. For sure. Can you tell me, Timothy, if there's a union of sound designers, you know, a, a a way of collective bargaining? There isn't really. I haven't heard of one. Yeah. No. No, I haven't heard of it. And wow, um, I, I think we're on the cusp of really getting organized. Uh, there, there are so many, I think that there are 8,000 in the world sound designers that are full time, call themselves sound designers, is their job title and job description. You know, that's, that's a pretty big chunk, as well as a whole lot more that are now in school and showing a strong interest because all this media production is getting so affordable for sure it it really is so the numbers are going to expand here and i i would like to see this become a real profession with all the benefits that are due
1: well i'm sure it's going to happen soon before (laughs) it used to be a bunch of individuals in dark rooms spread out across the world we're now uh, sound designers, f- location recordists. We can all connect through various social media, and I'm sure at some point there's going to be a tipping point right. where we uh, start banding together a bit more. In game audio, there's Gang, which is a collective of uh, game audio people. So they're they're making some inroads mm-hmm. there,
2: but right, yeah. Game audio is really a fascinating subject. <laughs> I've worked on a lot of the a lot of the games in the '90s. Mm-hmm. And it, it one of one of my jobs was to, you know, people had an idea of what the game was, but then and they knew where the environments were going to be, and so I'd go to these places. Um, in this case, it w- were the um, the world's most famous golf courses, and I'd produce um, maps of sounds over the course and how the whole thing should change as players players uh, move about and all the scenarios like that as well as a train simulator right Mm -hmm. oh that was that was like a dream job because not only do i love the sounds of trains but we had to record the ambiences through the countryside which the trains actually would travel through and in the uh, at the off chance that they would turn off the train or get an outside perspective we wanted them to hear the real sounds of that town or wherever they happened to be. So that was a lot of fun, really.
1: Wow, that sounds like a dream gig.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, I've been pretty fortunate to get those uh, dream gigs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right on. Uh, do you want to yeah. walk me through uh, your recording rig a little bit? Tell me a bit about Fritz.
2: Sure. Well, I I said earlier that I'm primarily a listener. Mm -hmm. And what I bring to my audience is the experience of being someplace beautiful and sonic and pristine. And I'm not interested in changing that experience. If the place I'm at isn't good enough, I'm in the wrong place. Once I find the position, the exact place and position of where I like to listen most, where I hear the music, then I replace my head with a binaural dummy head, the Neumann KU81i, and I find that it does a remarkable job of replicating the human experience of being there. And it also has the advanced feature that it's speaker compatible. When I received, and I know that the early versions of binaural recording, it was not speaker compatible. So binaural, all binaural earned a reputation of, well, you have to use headphones. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I won an Emmy for speaker playback using binaural uh, recordings. So that that really isn't the case today. And uh, certainly with the audience moving towards personal experiences where they're living uh, they're listening over earbuds this is really ideal so my first choice is always to go with the Neumann dummy head put that at these locations and it's surprising very educational because you can hear so precisely in the field how moving it one or two inches this way affects the perception of the space tilting it does all those kinds of things so it's added a lot to my education to find those magic places in the environment where sound is actually collected if if we look at the shape of the human ear the curves that are involved there they're also the same curves that we see reproduced over and over again in our musical instruments and those curves exist in nature, particularly at the base of trees, concave structures, all that. And so when you look for those places and find the the focus of the parabola, oh boy, I mean, there's just a lot going on. But the, the magic doesn't happen often until about an hour before the sun rises. I, I think anybody who is going into a natural place to record nature sounds and arrives after eight o'clock they missed it they missed the whole show because the wind has kicked up just enough that you might be listening for a quarter or a half a mile but when um, five o'clock in the morning even before the Sun breaks the horizon You're listening for miles in every direction. In fact, you can actually, this happened to me in Saskatchewan recording Grasslands National Park. I was hearing buffalo snorts that I knew because they were in pens that were 12 miles away from me. And rivers that were entirely out of sight. And then you hear it ripple just as the sun begins to approach the horizon. You can hear... The snorts go in and out the river disappear and this is all of course at the threshold of perception but nevertheless uh, important clues about how uh, sound behaves in the natural environment
1: so i've never actually used a, a dummy head to record and uh oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm jealous. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, you better not unless you have some money to yeah, spend. Yeah, well, that's you know, been a, be a bit a of a
1: problem so far with me doing it. But one of the things that I find uh fascinating about the technique is there's like a, there's no dead spot. So, with a traditional shotgun or other types of microphones, you can oh. hide oh, sounds yeah. in yeah, the yeah. dead spot, but with the dummy hey, head, exactly. you're getting everything right.
2: Yeah, um, with a dummy head is 360. It's just like humans here. So uh, it is the auditory equivalent of, let's say, a 360 panorama photograph, okay, Mm -hmm. where you have to find a location where you could take a picture in every direction and see no evidence of human presence okay it's that difficult to find a place to use this binaural system and even more difficult because objects can block the view of the object behind them but that doesn't happen with sound sound does not very rarely will one sound mask another sound Mm -hmm. and so the locations where I record a noise-free pristine environments generally requires an area of, and I know you'll find this hard to believe, uh, over a thousand square miles around it without any uh, significant motor noise. Those places are extremely rare to find. In 2012, I went down to the Kofan Reservation in uh, the Amazon Ecuadorian region And this was such a place. In fact, it was possible there, if you got lost, to go 1,200 miles before you'd even cross a road or hit another village. This is a very remote place, produced excellent sounds. But even there, there were one to two jet overflights per hour. Wow. So uh, when we think that there are these quiet places left out there... um, we need to think again and especially go listen. And if you are in a quiet place, the sad news is, is that it's much more likely that you have an undiagnosed noise-induced hearing loss than, in fact, you're in a quiet place. Mm-hmm. Most of the people with hearing loss are unaware that they have it because we can still talk to each other. Uh, They still understand the human language. And yes, the music sounds a little bit different, but they can still dance. But a lot of those high frequencies are gone. And uh, it's just, well, you know, I have a very (laughs) close relationship to hearing loss.
1: (laughs) I have a family cabin. As As I said before, I live in Toronto, Canada, and we have a family cabin that's about five and a half hours straight north of the city and uh Great. in the summers uh it's a bit of a mm-hmm. fishing mecca this area so there's a lot of motorboat traffic mm-hmm. and there's even planes that fly you out to the back lakes that are nowhere near the roads sure but in the winter when we go up to the cabin there's nobody up there it's completely right. yep. you're alone and uh like every, it's it's you're right there's a plane that flies by every once yep. in a while but when you catch that like 15 or half an hour of just complete silence because there's also no leaves on the trees anymore in the winter so you don't hear the leaves rustling and the majority of the birds Mm -hmm. are gone there's still definitely some but it's just it's uh, having i always lived in a city myself well i've always had this cabin to go to my whole life but uh like it's so it's almost jarring now to not hear a lot of noise and but then once you sink into it after about 10 minutes it's it's really uh, a wonderful feeling And I was wondering, Mm -hmm. I've I've been reading your book, One Square Inch of Silence, and I've been reading it on Mm -hmm. the subway, which is about as opposite Mm -hmm. an experience (laughs) as you can have between (laughs) what I'm reading and what I'm experiencing. And uh, I guess I just wondered if you could talk a bit about that whole project and uh, where it stands now.
2: Sure. One Square Inch of Silence. It is a book, but it's also a real place. I experienced uh, my first bout of hearing loss in 2003, and it was so significant. It was sudden onset hearing loss, bilateral, and it put me out of business almost overnight. And it was a very emotional and financial struggle for me To hang in there and hope that it would come back as quickly as it left. However, it did not come back for almost a year and a half. And I was distraught. You know, it's hard for me to really even talk about this and revisit it because of my current condition. But in, in April... Uh, my hearing did come back gradually enough that I knew that it was going to come back all the way, and I was so filled with gratitude that I said, "You know what? I've been listening to all these quiet places vanish. There were 23 in Washington State in 1989. There are only three today, and and I've thought that it's somebody else's job. I'm the sound tracker. It's not my job to save these places." But I was so filled with gratitude that my hearing was coming back, I just said, you know, it's not somebody else's job. I'm gonna take personal responsibility for this. And I hiked up one of my favorite places, the Ho Valley Rainforest in Olympic National Park. It's a World Heritage Site. I'm a biosphere reserve there's every reason why it should be a quiet place and in fact is the quietest uh, least intruded upon by noise of any other area in the lower 48 and i put down a stone and uh, about three and a half miles up the trail i put down a stone and i promised that i would defend this single one square inch from all human-caused noise intrusion. Well, the the first question is, what good is an inch? Okay, well, what good is an inch? All right, goes like this. If a single jet flies over a park, even at cruising altitude of 36,000 feet, 38,000 feet, under pristine conditions, it, drags this cone of noise which covers more than a thousand square miles so i reasoned well if a point of noise can have such an impact over a national park can't a point of quiet if maintained entirely noise-free also impact a thousand square miles around it and indeed that turns out to be true and So I've been able to defend it, and it's now a non-profit uh, organization, and we have contributors as well as a board, and we've had Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, and Hawaiian Airlines uh, cooperate by avoiding Olympic National Park when they can. But unfortunately, the FAA has designated, if you can believe it, Olympic National Park, a noise-sensitive area, as the preferred flight path. Now, we've done the math work, and if these flights were to fly around Olympic National Park, yes, it might in some cases add to less than a minute of their flight time and less than a dollar in added fuel costs per ticketed passenger so it's a very insignificant impact on that and in some cases it actually shortens the path of flights that are currently going over olympic national park there is not one place on planet earth which is off limits to noise pollution and not one national park that the faa avoids this has got to change this has totally got to change there's every reason for it to happen the local economy with our with our noise levels in our urban environments way above what the World Health Organization has set as safe levels noise has become toxic in this country and these quiet areas are the antidote the 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 consequences of that are not just loss of well-being it's loss of health, and increased uh, cardiovascular um, disorder. Just the whole thing, basically, is shortens your lifespan. All right, and that's that's. You can tell. I could really go on, on and on about this. <laughs> no, it's good that
1: someone's out there yeah. doing so, this and talking about it because the, it's the, definitely yeah, something that big, isn't being the, talked about in uh, general day to day.
2: Yeah. Right, and the big target date is 2016 when the National Park Service celebrates its centennial. And we believe that that is the target date that we basically should establish the world's first quiet place. If not at Olympic National Park, which is the least noise polluted anywhere in the 48, as I said before, then Haleakala National Park on the island of Maui where the crater there is the quietest, the least decibels, it's actually measured in negative decibels, of any place on Earth. Wow. And that, that you know, would be... In, and most of the aircraft already avoid Haleakala Crater, except air tours, because uh, they're making their descent uh, to land at... Uh, um, the airport there at Maui and so they're they're already you know making a different approach so there's not even an inconvenience there but in any case we need at least one place put on the map and then we can build from there.
1: I was having a conversation with someone the other day about this exact topic about how there's nowhere left that planes don't fly over and it uh my point that i would made was i've flown over the very heart of greenland uh on a transcontinental mm-hmm. flight and i looked out the window and it's just snow everywhere it's but i don't even know right. if a human's been there but the sound of the plane is still getting there
2: e- exactly i've i've flown over the sahara desert yeah i've flown over the arctic you know you go chicago to london that's how you're going to go a lot of flights going over it's it's a whole new world the 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 population at any given daytime moment of airborne travelers over the continental United States is greater than 20,000 people are off the ground. Wow. And the fastest uh, sector of aviation growth right now are the corporate jets. And the corporate jets fly even lower. They fly pretty fast. And of course, they're trying to avoid the long lines and and also the possible tracking of who's going where. Um, corporate jets. Uh, gosh, I, I could go on and <laughs> on about this, but I I prefer if we could to change topics here sure. and um, to the positive for sure. And and the positive is besides you know okay is a given that noise pollution needs to be cleaned up, and I believe that we will. The positive is that most people, unless they have been to a pristine wilderness area, don't really know uh, what nature truly sounds like and how far the healthy human ear can hear and how many messages and information are just flowing all the time. I believe that the End of Night, a book that was published this year, it states that 9 out of 10 children will never see the Milky Way because life is so urban. Wow. That's, yeah, that changes everything. And, and I believe even a smaller percentage will ever have an experience without noise pollution. So what happens from in our libraries today when we apply sounds to our designs is we use sounds that have been recorded in noisy places, they've been processed, treated good enough so that they do the trick but we miss the music we miss the sounds that the human ear needs to hear, that it craves, that it just you know has a great thirst for mm-hmm. the, the, the human ear has is tuned like a musical instrument okay that we have a a peak hearing sensitivity we don't hear all frequencies uh, evenly and we have a peak hearing sensitivity right at 2.5 kilohertz it goes up sometimes to uh, five kilohertz and these are the resonant frequencies of the auditory canal and if And it's common in in bioacoustics to look at the frequency sensitivity of a species so that we can learn about what kinds of sounds that species needs to hear in order to better survive. And so knowing this, I went on a search for what in our ancestors' environment falls neatly in this bandwidth of peak sensitivity. And I found that it was not our own voice. No, not at all. But instead, a very popular subject, and that's Mm birdsong. I took the uh, dawn chorus of the Mississippi Valley, and this was after an Arctic blast came down from the north in the springtime. And so all the neotropical migrants had bunched up in this one uh, forest, there are thigh countless. There. It's just like everybody was waiting for the thaw so they could, you know, flood to the north. And then that morning came and it was just a glorious crescendo of hope and inspiration and enthusiasm and of course it's the males that are singing so we might as well add testosterone too and I then analyzed the the frequency spectrum of that it's a perfect fit to our ears and I of course have a story on the scenario of why that would happen why listening to songbirds being able to detect very faint bird song at a distance would be a huge advantage to our nomadic ancestors. But that's a whole other story. I'll just leave everybody guessing.
1: <laughs> I assume it has to do with <laughs> being able to tell where predators are because birds lo- sing. No, no, no,
2: no, no. no, no. Um, what it has to do with is if you could imagine yourself, uh, you know, with let's say 20 others in your small tribe, you have exhausted your natural resources, you've cut the firewood, you've harvested uh, the food and everything like this, and now it's time to move on, okay? You need fertile ground, you need resources again. Uh, So in this search, you reach a mountain ridgetop, all right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a choice between two valleys. One valley... You, you, you can't hear anything. You just can't hear anything. You listen really hard, and no news is good news. At least you aren't hearing anything violent going on, but you mm-hmm. don't hear anything. And then you listen to the other valley, and you can barely make out the bird song. And if the birds are singing, there's a food base, there's water, there's an extended favorable growing season long enough, To get the young off the nest. Birdsong is the number one indicator of habitats prosperous to humans. The soundtrack of our prosperity. Yes. So for a sound designer, what does that mean? For a sound designer, it means, hey, if what's going on right now in game action or in a film, if this is good news coming your way, if something good is about to happen, why not just slide in a little bit of bird song because it's going to communicate to those animal ears that are still on each of us yeah so in my sound designing documents the articles Mm -hmm. is what i i basically try to bring those messages from the earth that i've heard and the lessons that i've learned and find the cultural relevance Uh, just as music helps tell the story Let us know if something dramatic, suspenseful is going on at this particular time. Nature sounds can do the exact same thing, okay? And so in sound designing, for example, if you have to work with a transition, all right, maybe even a very difficult transition from one setting like Africa, dry and barren, to a place really lush uh, like the Amazon rainforest. Well, how are you going to make that transition with the audience accepting it? If you just like crossfaded one to the other, people go, why are we here? Okay. But if we allow the rain, maybe even some dramatic thunder to echo through the Kalahari and and, and quench the thirst of the desert pavement, all right? And the audience is just enraptured in this curtain that suddenly falls. And then as the curtain lifts, and now we're in this fertile center of biodiversity, it's just an oh, wow, instead of what gives, you know? Mm-hmm. So, it you know, by, by understanding the role of nature sounds in the human experience, the sound designer can gain huge control over audience experience.
1: Well, I think it's every sound designer's goals, dream, ambition, to be able to tell the story's emotion with the sounds uh, instead of hammering it over the head with the score. The music telling you how to feel, if you can convey that with uh, the ambiences and the uh, sounds that you add in,
2: (laughs) it's way more fun. I love, yeah, I love talking to sound people because (laughs) the English language is not really well adapted to sound. So we just do a lot of hand-waving, emotion, (laughs) and we're listening to each other's tones of voice more than word choice. You know, nobody's ever going to, like, say, "Uh, why did you say that when somebody is describing their sound experience? You know, they're going to hear the joy or the weirdness or the sarcasm, you know, and that's the real statement. Oh, it's so much fun to enter into a creative dialogue with other sound people because I think, you know, it's it's our sense of truth and every sound does have an emotion
1: it's true we're running out of time here but i just wanted to quickly touch base with you and get an update on your current hearing situation yeah it went away and then it came back Mm -hmm. and now you're having problems with it again
2: uh yeah yeah i know oh my god yeah it's quite a story actually a story i can tell now because i'm on the upswing but a year and a half ago, I was losing my hearing very rapidly. Another sudden onset, but it was a little bit different. I had pressure in my head. Um, I, and one of my auditory canals uh, narrowed quite a bit compared to the other one. There were all these concerns, and you know, my catastrophic health insurance uh, didn't kick in till $10,000. I didn't have that. And even so, I could still understand people speaking. So that's considered elective, right? And so I, I postponed all that and it just, you know, it just got worse and worse until the springtime, this last spring in 2013. It looked like before um, 2014, I was going to be stone deaf. My left ear, I could only hear if I tapped on the side of my head and my right ear would barely make out human speech. And, it, you know, I was tanking fast and uh, CBS uh, News, the morning show covered it, um, NPR covered it. And as the result of that, because, you know, I'm such a fan of silence, right? Mm-hmm. And so I knew the unspoken, uh, the unspoken theme was be careful what you wish for. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and so at least that was kind of entertaining but still trapped in this situation and things still getting worse. And because I was unable to continue doing my work at Quiet Planet, I had people sit next to me to listen for me. I'd ask them questions, but you know that's not the same. I got stressed out even more, which exacerbated my hearing loss. But the the hard-of-hearing community, um, when they heard the media watch the television They started to respond to me and tell me their stories and there's something that really emerged out of all of that which is that allergies and hearing loss are very closely related and so this really uh, I realized that I had an allergy problem years ago and even though I didn't have itchy eyes or sniffling nose because of this relationship and I decided to explore it and sure enough that's the cause that i have an autoimmune disease uh, that, that is exacerbated so originally before my hearing loss i was only allergic to grass and cats that was off the charts but because i was impacted with that through my hearing and i got stressed my immune system wigged out entirely and i became allergic to everything and now i'm receiving treatment and uh my immune system is relaxing my hearing is coming back i'm like you know i i feel like i'm 30 years younger because i'm so optimistic and so
1: thankful that's great so this has all been triggered through allergies your hearing problems i did yes. not I've, I've never heard that before
2: yeah i know um and actually is triggered by a stressed immune system. Okay, so the aller- if your okay. immune system is stressed, then allergies are exacerbated. So, it's um it's an autoimmune disease that is creating this problem and the treatment is to treat my immune system so that it behaves normally again because it got just totally out of whack. It might take as long as 2 years. But the good news is I've heard my first bird, right? Ah. <laughs> I'm beginning to hear insects again. You know, not real clear and not all of them. But, you know, my world is coming back. I'm, I'm born again now. And, and there are all these things I haven't heard or recorded yet. And uh, the sound tracker is back. Excellent. That is fantastic. I'm very thrilled. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Do you have a Twitter account that you want to let people know how to follow you on? Or Oh, I, I think the best way to go is visit uh, quietplanet.com and check out our blog. That's where we'll have all kinds of interesting stuff. And if you're a sound designer and you don't see what you like there, uh, send us an email because that's going to determine the order of What we publish, whatever is on everybody's wish list, that's what will come next. So be in touch and enjoy the sounds and happy designing. Great. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you, Timothy.
1: Okay, there you have it, my long-form interview with Mr. Hempton. As he said, you can head over to quietplanet.com for his sound effects libraries and blog. If you are looking to learn more about Gordon, you can purchase and download the documentary on his work called The Sound Tracker at soundtrackerthemovie.com. And if you purchase the movie from there, it comes with a discount code that can be used to purchase any of the libraries at quietplanet.com. Finally, if you are interested in his One Square Inch of Silence project, you can look out for his book, One Square Inch of Silence, one man's search for natural silence in a noisy world. It's available through Free Press Publishing. After hearing Gordon's struggles with hearing loss, it struck me that hearing safety is a fairly undiscussed topic in our community. We talk a lot about how to achieve great sounds, but rarely talk about the best practices to keep our ears in top form so we can continue to hear all the cool sounds we come up with. So I reached out to my own audiologist, Marshall Chason, and asked him if he would come on the podcast and give us advice on the best ways to keep our ears from turning on us. Dr. Chasen specializes in working with musicians, and although sound designers and musicians' hearing needs are not exactly the same, his expertise mostly translates seamlessly. I went down to his offices with a few mics and got this interview. Do you want to just quickly introduce yourself? Sure.
0: I'm Marshall Chasen. I'm a doctor of audiology, which is a kind of a snotty way of saying I'm an audiologist. And um, I specialize in musicians and have for the last 25 years, um, specifically hearing loss prevention among musicians. Excellent. So the listeners of the podcast have just spent some time listening
1: to an interview with Gordon Hempton, in which he spoke about his hearing loss. And uh, I wanted to bring you on to talk about ways that we can all avoid that because this was a catastrophic thing in his life it involved insurance problems it involved the loss of employment and uh, obviously people who make a living with their ears this is the most important thing they can take care of so uh just wondering some if you could give us some quick tips on well first of all there's a i read on your website there's a an equation with involving 85 dB and 40 hours, you wanna explain that?
0: Yep, hearing loss from noise exposure or equivalently music exposure is, is the same thing. It, it's, it's predictable, it's slow and gradual, it may take many, many years, um, but we know that we can be exposed to 85 decibels for 40 hours a week and not really suffer any hearing loss. Anything more than 85, that's where the danger occurs. Now, 85 decibels is not loud. A dial tone on a telephone is 85 decibels. Um, if you flush a toilet with your head in, in the toilet, that's about 85 decibels. So nobody, it might be uncomfortable, but so <laughs> you if, do that a lot. if you have a hangover, <laughs> well, I, I've, I've read this. Okay. Uh, I've actually measured it as well. It's true. So 85 decibels is not all that loud. But it turns out that we can be exposed to 85 decibels for 40 hours a week, and we'll have, let's say, a certain damage after a year or two. This is not after a week or two. This is a year or two. 85 decibels for 40 hours is identical to 88 decibels for only 20 hours a week. 91 decibels for only 10 hours a week. 94 for only 5 hours a week. And so on. For every 3 decibel increase, it doubles your damage. Or equivalently, if we can reduce the noise by 3 decibels, which is really barely detectable, um, we've one half your damage. So you can be exposed to 100 decibels, a rock concert, for an hour or two, week and that's okay just don't go and mow your lawn the next day so there's a dosage or a a trade-off we in fact call this a trading relationship between three decibels and the um, duration
1: and also there's been some research that if you're enjoying what you're hearing it causes less damage than if you're annoyed by what you're Yeah, marrying?
0: There are other secondary factors. Not so much that you enjoy it is less damaging, but if you dislike it, it's more damaging. So it works backwards. And we're not too sure of why that is the case, but they did a study back in 1970 where they did the study where they um, gave Two groups of people, the same noise, same duration, so same dose. One was very positively predisposed; it was is a reward, it was a good thing. And the other group was a very negative thing, and, and there were it was a bad thing, it was a punishment. And it turns out that the temporary loss they measured for the bad group was much greater than for the good group. And it turns out that that this is true of all sorts of music and all sorts of stuff. But generally, if you're stressed, certain hormones are emitted in your body, not just your ear, but throughout your body, cortisol. For this has a a chemical relationship to something called glutamate now glutamate is not well known to the public dopamine serotonin those are much more commonly heard and these are what we call neurotransmitter substances they occur or they live between the nerves in our body and they help this signal get from one nerve to the other well it turns out that glutamate is very important for hearing high levels of glutamate can be toxic to the ear and in fact if we ever go to a rock concert and our ears are ringing for a while when we come out and if indeed i was to measure your hearing the moment you left the rock concert it would temporarily be down a little bit this is probably related to glutamate toxicity of the ear so high levels of glutamate can be toxic well when you're stressed the cortisol facilitates the development of glutamate high levels of glutamate causes greater hearing loss so it's not so much that you like it is less damaging but if you dislike it there is evidence that it's more damaging
1: I found that to be true. I used to work on an animated series that involved tiny little uh, pink fairies Mm -hmm. and they all had squeaky voices and it was just the most annoying show I've ever worked on. And I really felt like my ears were bothering me more after a day working on that show than a day working on a show that I personally enjoyed working on more. So I found that to be really interesting. I, I just assumed I was making that up because I was annoyed by it, but apparently maybe there was a little science behind
0: that what's the best way to care for your ears well there's not just a best way. there's many best ways one best way is moderation Uh, if you do go to a rock concert on Friday night enjoy it thoroughly just don't mow your lawn on Saturday give your ears maybe a day or two rest or better still get someone else to mow your lawn for you (laughs) so it's moderation Um, that's true of anything in life uh, to a certain extent another thing that you could do is you could hum or whistle while you work now it turns out that there's a little muscle in our middle ears behind the eardrum. The middle ear is where ch- kids get a lot of ear infections. Well this muscle is connected to the three little bones in the middle ear that we learned about in grade four, the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this muscle upon loud sounds tightens or squinches up and it makes the sound less able to get through to your ear. Now it turns out that if we can phone ape, if we can say like, ah, or grunt, or just, just talk, um, that it causes this muscle to tighten up and these bones don't transduce the sound to the ear very well. So if you're walking past a construction site that's very noisy, hum, it doesn't have to be loud, like, mmm very softly causes this muscle to be elicited and the sound that actually gets the ear isn't as 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 high level as it would have been so it's okay to grunt so if you know that there's going to be a, um, a cymbal or if you're a drummer and you're about to hit a rim shot just hum just prior to that drummers do this naturally a third option of the moderation and and whistling while you walk or at least talking while you're is you're, you're listening to music is to, uh, but don't talk to yourself too much, there are problems with that, is to use hearing protection. Now, prior to 1988, hearing protection didn't work. If you plug your ears, you sound like you have a cold. You lose the whole right-hand side of the piano when you plug your ears. They just don't work. Uh, in 1988, a company called Etymotic Research, um, E-T-Y-M-O-T-I-C dot It's actually a really amazing website. It has a lot of articles uh, about hearing loss prevention. It's a great website generally. But they came out with this product that was a flat ear plug. That is, it treated the left-hand side of the piano keyboard, the bass notes, the mid-range, the high-end identically, so that when you put them I yani... The music still sounds like the music. You don't lose the high end. It doesn't sound all echoey or, or dead. It sounds very live. And because it treated all the sounds identically, it dropped it from a damaging to a non-damaging level. Now, it's called the ER15. 15. 15 means 15 decibel reduction. Well, that may not sound like a lot, but if we do that 3 dB trick again, every 3 decibel down is one half the damage. And you do the math, it's 1 seconds So you could be exposed 32 times as long with a mere 3, uh, 15 decibel reduction. And this has been a boon to musicians and people that like to listen to music since 1988. They're custom made. We take a molding or an impression of your ear, send them to a lab, and a week later you actually get them back. They are expensive, but they last for 20, 30 years, or at least mine have lasted uh, since 1988 when I got my first pair. Uh, there are a less expensive one size fits all version called an ETY plug, ETY plug. And it sticks out of the ear like a little Martian antenna out of your ear, but it has the same flat configuration. And again, that's been very useful. And you can get that through the edamotic.com website. Mm -hmm. I
1: have the ER25. I'm a drummer. And uh, I don't know if you recall, but when uh, it was probably 15 years ago when I first came in to see you, you asked me not to tell you what instrument I played until you'd done the hearing test. And then you told me what instrument I played and you were dead on because there was a notch in my left ear for the hi-hat. Yes.
0: And uh, that was very impressive. <laughs> well, that's a very good point. The ER-25 became available in 1992. Okay. And we just realized that drummers need a little bit more hearing protection than the ER-15. Uh, drummers are very interesting because they're very much like violinists. Violinists hold this noise generator by the left ear. Drummers have a hi-hat by their left side and indeed the left ear is worse than the right ear most noise exposure in industry and most music is equal or symmetrical except for the drummers and the violinists and violas too mm-hmm. so do you want to like, give me a quick word on ear cleanliness
1: like yeah, I'm, 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 we're not supposed to just go in there with a q-tip and jab yeah. it as hard as we can yeah.
0: right so ear ear wax is good for you I wouldn't eat it but it's like tears are think of it like tears it has naturally occurring uh, antibiotics it's a major lubricant there's no need to ever take it out yourself certainly do not use ear candling that's the worst thing that you could do there is a natural mechanism by which wax comes out with the hairs of the outer part of the ear and you can clean it in the outer part of the ear but don't use q-tips q-tips are good for using cleaning your silverware What has sometimes happens with people that you do use Q-tips, they push the wax further in and it makes it more difficult. It can become impacted. If your family doctor feels that it's obscuring the way, only then will they remove the wax. But if they can see your eardrum uh, clearly, they're going to leave whatever wax is in there. Imagine your eyes without tears, all dry and irritated and itchy. Well, your ears, same thing. If you take out the wax unnecessarily, they will be all dry and irritated and itchy. You suggest you just don't Go in there and get the earwax until it becomes an issue. Exactly. Take the word earwax, uh, delete it from your vocabulary. It's not an issue. You shouldn't think about it. You shouldn't dream about it. Well, you can dream about it. (laughs) But uh, but don't worry about earwax. Earwax is a non-issue. Fair enough. It is not dirt.
1: Let's say I'm recording monster trucks for a movie. And these engines are insanely loud. I've got headphones on monitoring for multiple hours that day I've just got engines roaring in my ears how long should be before I start reintroducing loud sounds like what's the is there an equation like a certain amount of hours Uh, there's
0: not an equation but if you are exposed to overly loud sounds or maybe you've You've forgotten your earplugs and you went to a concert or, or whatever um, there's a row of thumb 16 to 18 hours so that if you are re-exposed within 16 to 18 hours it kind of adds up and this dosage can can add however if you, if you take a break for 16 to 18 hours it's as if you get to start again so let's say you do go to a rock concert on Friday night and you want to go on Saturday night too that's okay um, uh, probably wear hearing protection if you can, uh, I'd rather not, uh, that's kind of an antisocial thing, going to two <laughs> raw concerts two consecutive nights, but as long as it's sp- a space between 16 or to 18 hours, the ear kind of recovers and allows it to reset.
1: And how many nights in a row can you do that? Like, is it always that? Uh,
0: or it, 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 Well... We don't really know. That's a very good question. How many nights in a row can you do this? Well, we know the, the, the immediate effects of a measurable hearing loss resolves after 16 to 18 hours, uh, what we call temporary threshold shifter, TTS. We don't really have good data to suggest um, uh, how often you should do it. Uh, I would suggest that unless you have to for your business, maybe once a week would be sufficient. If you have to do it for your business, do wear hearing protection. If you can drop the level below 85 decibels, so let's say the constant is 100 decibels, and you have the ER-15, that will drop it to 85 decibels, then you're okay and you're, you're very, very safe. There are some iPod based. Uh, inexpensive, in many cases free sound level meter applications or apps that you can get, and they're fairly accurate. They're not quite, they're, they're not perfect. They're not as accurate as the multi-hundred or multi-thousand-dollar sound level meters used in research, but they give you a pretty good ballpark of how accurate something can be. And if you're measuring, you take out your smartphone and you measure the concert. It's about 95. You know that you're pretty safe with your ER ER-15s or your ETY, one-size-fits-all earplugs, and you can be exposed forever. Tinnitus or tinnitus? Good question. Tinnitus or tinnitus. If you're a Latin scholar and or over the age of 30 and you went to school on the East Coast, it's (laughs) tinnitus. If you went to school on the West Coast, it's tinnitus. Um, A Latin scholar would argue it's tinnitus. Uh, Both ways are are acceptable. But tinnitus is actually more important than hearing loss. That is, many musicians, they can have a very significant hearing loss and still be able to effectively play and enjoy uh, and compose their, their music. In fact, I specialize with special hearing aids just designed for musicians that can receive louder music without distorting. And so there are many things that we can do with hearing loss, but as the hearing loss gets more and more severe, tinnitus or ringing or buzzing in the ears gets more and more severe. That along with pitch perception problems. Imagine a C and you hear it as B flat or a B, something a little bit flatter than it is, both of those things, tinnitus and the pitch perception, can be career-threatening. You usually don't get those unless you also have a hearing loss. So yes, I'm, I'm concerned about the prevention of hearing loss, but I'm most concerned about the prevention of tinnitus and the prevention of pitch perception problems. Thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.
1: I learned a lot from this interview. Hopefully you did too. Dr. Chason wrote a book called Hearing the Music. Hearing Loss Prevention for Musicians, that he offers for free in a downloadable PDF format. You can go grab it from marshallchasonassociates.ca. That's Marshall C-H-A-S-I-N associates.ca. And then navigate to the Articles tab once you're there. All the links I've mentioned and more will be available on the page for this episode at tonebenders.net. Please head over there and leave a comment while you're there if you like. We are looking to do a Listener's Questions segment in a future episode, so if you have any questions you think we might be able to help you out with, let us know via our Twitter or Facebook pages, or email us at info at the Well, thanks for listening. Before I throw it to Renee for the outro, Mr. Hempton also provided us with some great recordings that we're using as the bumpers here. This recording we're going to listen to on the way out is a recording of the birds and the water at Trout Lake. Okay, Renee, take it away. Thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Tim for editing the show. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders on Twitter. You can go to tonebenders.net and leave us a comment, or check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash
2: tonebenderspodcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.
0: To Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders or email us at DC, Timothy, or Renee at tonebenders.net.